So John chapter 13, that's where uh, we're going to be reading from tonight. John chapter, the, the, John is the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to read chapter 13. I want to begin reading verse 31 and then read through chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 6. And then also what we're going to do is we're going to confess uh, question answers uh, 15 through 18 of a document that we have been going through here as a church something that goes back many years, is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the way that we've been approaching the Heidelberg Catechism as a teaching document is our desire is to not only become more fine-tuned in our understanding of the basics of the Christian faith, but we, we want to be informed to such an extent that we have something to say to the world. Many times when, when you talk to people about evangelism, and it's not just in our kinds of churches across the evangelical world, Many, many Christians are very uncomfortable with sharing their faith. And you might want to ask yourself the question why that is. Um, I think sometimes they're just afraid of the, the reactions of people, that people are going to get in their face, right? Sometimes that happens. Um, but I think, uh, truth be told, people don't usually want to admit it, but a lot of times they feel a bit uncomfortable sharing their faith with others because they're not quite sure how to do it. I mean, wh what am I going to say? How do I begin? Uh, if they challenge me in terms of my faith, do I understand my own faith even well enough to be able to answer their questions? That's one of the reasons why we go through this Heidelberg Catechism in light of the Scriptures. So, bear that in mind. That's the kind of perspective we have here. So, John chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards or you will follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, especially 14, verse 1 and following. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And especially verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Simply put, Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. Now, 
in this sermon, what we're going to focus on is why Jesus alone is singularly qualified to bring any human being to God, to break the sin barrier that separates us from God and bring us into the presence of God, cleansed, reconciled, restored. What makes Jesus singularly qualified? Now, actually, that question that is posed sometimes by people in the world is actually answered very well and succinctly in the document that we're going to confess now. So we could put the uh, Heidelberg up there if you would. Okay, so why don't we do this? We'll switch around from last time. Last time we met, you posed the question, and I answered it. We're going to switch it around. I'll ask the question, and together let's answer it. No mumbling here at Pathway, okay? What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? Let's say together. One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. Question 16. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. All right, question 17. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Finally, question 18. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All right. Now, on the back table there, in the back of the gym, there's a book table. And on that book table, there's a number of books that are well worth uh, looking through. Don't take them with you yet. We're still trying to figure out how we're going to do this kind of library thing. But anyway, just, just page through them a little bit. And um, there's one book in the back that was written, I think it was around, I remember reading it when church planting in Springfield, Missouri, southern Missouri, in the Ozark region, and it was a, a book by a man named Tim Keller, who's a pastor uh, in uh, Manhattan, I believe he's retired now, but uh, he wrote this book that was uh, very high up, maybe even number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's called simply The Reason for God. And maybe some of you here have read that book, and you, if you haven't, it's a, a book well worth reading. At any rate, in the introduction to that book, Keller talks about one question that he would often pose to people that he knew uh, were not Christians and who were relatively unchurched. And the question was very simply this. What's the biggest problem that you have with Christianity? What's the biggest problem you have with Christianity? Very basic question. And invariably, he said almost invariably, the number one reason why people had a problem with Christianity is because of its exclusivity. Now, I'm not expecting any child here to understand just what I said here, so I'm going to say it very simply. And kids, I want you to listen up, and for those of you who are visiting, we go through this series um, not only for us as adults, but we try to keep things rather simple, especially for our kids, because we want our kids 
from, from yay tall, right, kids, you, you, you're very young, right, and then you start growing. As you grow up, we want you to understand the Christian faith, okay? So when someone says, well, I'm not sure about Christianity because I don't like its exclusivity, what they're really saying is, I don't like the fact that you Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God, that, the, that Christianity is the only way to God. And kids, I want to tell you something. As you grow older and where our country is going, you're going to get, you're going to get pressed with that. Okay, th- times are going to, you know, I'm, I'm not a pessimist by nature. I'm a realist. And times are going to get tough, and you need to know what you believe, and you need to know what to share with others when they ask you that, okay? So there are many people who say, well, I got a problem with the fact that Jesus is the only way to God, because here's the thing. There are many religions in the world, and there are many faiths in the world, and you Christians say there's only one way, and we go, yeah. Push back. Push back. Okay, so just count on it. But you can be winsome in saying there's a reason why we say there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. So, as I said to you last time, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, remember I said this, try to imagine that you have a friend who's not a Christian and you meet with that, that the friend has opened himself up or herself to, let's just say it's a guy, and you, you meet, let's say, at a coffee shop and you've developed somewhat a relationship with that friend and they want to get together and they want to talk about the Christian faith, like God has opened up the heart of that individual, okay? So, you start meeting and after, I don't know, shooting the bowl about whatever, you finally get to the point where you're going to talk about your faith. And so you say, how do I begin with that? Well, it's very interesting that a number of years ago, a man named John Calvin wrote a magnum opus, his greatest work called um, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And Calvin, when, before he even started talking about God, he talked about this. He talked about the Bible. Because the Bible, primarily is the way that we come to know God. Now, we come to know God by the world around us, right? We know the glory and the power and the divinity of God. But if we want to know specifically who God is and the reason why Jesus is the only way to God, then we have to begin with the Bible. So that's what Calvin does, rightly so. All right. Well, then, Calvin talks about, well, we should as well. You talk about God. So what are you going to say about God? Well, you can say a lot of things about God, but here's something to think about. And, and, and this is kind of all this lengthy intros all leading us up to the catechism. When you, when you talk about God, you're going to want to talk about some what we call fundamental characteristics or attributes, qualities of God. And here's three to remember among many. You say, number one, I've got to tell you that, that God is, one of his preeminent attributes is his holiness. His holiness. Remember if you were here throughout the weeks that we've been going through this, remember that there's only one attribute of God that's mentioned uh, a number of times. It's not love, it's not mercy, it's not justice, it's not wrath, it's holiness, right? The angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. So kids, God is holy. What do we mean by that? When we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is distinguished as a creator from all that is creaturely, but we're also saying that God is separate from all that is sinful, all that is unholy. You and I are unholy. We're not perfect. God is perfect and God is holy. All right, number one. Number two, closely connected with God's holiness is his righteousness. That is, God himself conforms or agrees with his own will, with his own laws that he gives to us. 
He always lives up to his own laws, always lives up to his own rules. We can't do that. We're inconsistent at best. So we're a lot like the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 7, that what I want to do, I don't do, and that what I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. God can never say that because he's always righteous. So God is holy, God is righteous, and then finally, closely connected with that is God is just. When we say that, we're saying that God is a holy and a righteous God must give sin what is its due, and sin in our lives, moral indiscretion, is not something that God winks at and says, boy, I know you have a hard time with that. You can try to do better next time. That's not how God works. God must punish sin in this life as well as the life to come. Now, Let's say you lay that out basically in the same way to your friend. Your friend's thinking about this, and he says, okay, if that's true, then that's that's not a good situation for me or anyone else who's not a Christian, right? You go, yes. Okay, then what, what, what can be done so that I don't have to fall under this judgment in this life as well as the life to come? Can I, can I somehow get right with God? Maybe I can just be a better person, you know? I'll really try. And the fact of the matter is that's not going to work because God as a holy God requires a quality and quantity of good deeds and goodness that we can't give him. Because his standard is high. Not low, high. He demands perfection. We can't give that. So your friend says, okay, what about someone else? Can they do that for me? Can they get me right with God so I can get up from under that punishment? And the answer to that is no. Because all human beings are on the same boat. We're inconsistently good at best. So, what's the answer to that? And the answer the Christian gives is this. Listen, we can't get right with God here by ourselves. We can't get right with God on the basis of anyone else on this planet who's no fundamentally different than we are. The answer to this does not come from inside or around, but from above. God has to supply the way to himself. And he has done that, the Bible says, by sending his son Jesus Christ into this world to deal with the sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ had to pay the price of death because the wages of sin is death. Jesus pays that so that whoever entrusts themselves to Jesus by faith then has a way to God. We trust in Jesus, not ourselves, anybody else, but in Jesus. That's why Christians are always talking about Jesus. At least we should, because he's the only way to God. All right. One final thing, and I want to quickly get to the passage. Your friend says, okay, well, if that's true, you Christians are always talking about Jesus, and Jesus is the only way to God. Well, um, okay, why Jesus? Why is Jesus singularly qualified to bring us to God? And nobody else. I mean, what are those qualifications? Bingo. All right? That's what we're dealing with now. Okay? Now, we're in the Gospel of John, and Jesus basically says, I'll set the context very quickly, Jesus says to his disciples that he's going to be leaving them. And he's going somewhere, and they can't follow him. Uh, Now, Obviously, since we're on the, the back end of this, right, Jesus, Jesus is living right now with his disciples, and he's ministering to them, and they're ministering together to the world. 
But Jesus is giving them a clue about what's going to happen in the future, and he's saying, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you, and basically we know, right, on the basis of subsequent scriptures, that, that Jesus is referring to his ascension, because Jesus says, I'm going to my father, and I'm going to my father's house. Well, when did he do that? He did this after he suffered and died and was buried and rose from the dead, and after he rose from the dead, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And that's what Jesus is referring to. He says, I'm going to my Father, and I'm going to my Father's house. All right. Well, this, as you can imagine, with the disciples who have been with Jesus, they spent three years ministering very close to Jesus, this, um, this caused a great amount of anxiety. They're, they're worried. I mean, kids, what happened if, you're, if your dad and mom said, we're going to be leaving you, and where, you're, where we're going, you can't follow? It's like, what? So it was with the disciples. And so Peter is wondering, okay, um, he's, he's wondering about the when of Jesus is going, and he's saying, Lord, you're, you're, you're leaving us, and you say, you can't follow me now, but you will later. Um, Jesus, why can't I follow you now? Why not now? But then, it's also a man named Thomas, and we're, we are a lot like, well, we're both, we're all like Peter, but we're also like Thomas. And Thomas is not wondering about the when, but the how. And, and Jesus says, you know where I'm going. You know where I'm going. And Thomas is like, uh, no, we don't. We don't. Um, we don't know the way. We don't, we, we don't know the way to the Father. And we don't know the way to the Father's house. Now, sometimes when you, you understand the disciples of Jesus, you're going like, they really didn't understand a lot, did they? Well, sometimes they're a little bit like us. We're always trying to understand things, Right? So Thomas is like, um, I, don't, I don't know how to get to the Father, and I don't know how to get to the Father's house. And what's Jesus' response? I'll tell you the way. I am the way. <laughs> I'm the way to my Father, and I'm the way to my Father's house. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, it's a very simple statement, but I want to tell you it's a very profound statement. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very profound statement and it's a very what we call countercultural statement. I'm the only one to the Father. Now, notice what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying, you know, there's, um, there's many ways to the Father, and honestly, I'm just one of them. And there's many forms of truth, and I'm, I'm just one of them. And there are, um, there are many sources of life. And honestly, I'm, I'm just one of them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's only one way to God, and there's only one true truth, and there's only one ultimate source of life, and that's me. And notice closely the text here. Jesus says, I am, I am, and he uses what we call a definite article. Kids, when you're in school and you're going through grammar classes, you learn the difference between a definite article and an indefinite article. Let me be real simple. Definite article is the word the, and an indefinite article is the word a. The and a. Now, it's important you understand the difference between the two. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, as if there's many sources of truth and life and so on. But Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one can come to the Father but through me. Now, 
You can say, well, that's what Jesus says. Uh, that's what the apostles, the followers of Jesus said as well. Acts 4, verse 12. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, but by the name of Jesus. Wow. You know what people in this world think? Man, that is narrow. That is arrogant. <laughs> that, that is so exclusive. And it, it just doesn't set well with them. Have you ever met people like that? For those of you who are new here, we take like about five to seven minutes after the sermon to have a couple questions that we discuss. I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to ask you one question, and that is this. Have you ever shared your faith with someone else? And particularly, have you mentioned your faith in Jesus with someone else? And if you did, what kind of reaction did you receive? Be prepared for that, because I'm going to ask that. Okay, now, the statement of Jesus does seem arrogant, and sometimes you are going to, you're going to get, I just guarantee you're going to get some kind of pushback, and you've got to be prepared for that. Okay, you've got to be prepared for that. So, I want to, I want to, I want to give you a little bit of a breathe here, here, and I want to share something with you. I'll give you an example of this. When I was uh, in seminary, after about a year of seminary, uh, Joy, that's my wife, and I visited my parents, no, her parents, in California, a place called Bakersfield. So we flew out there, and what happened is that on a particular day, soon after we got there, we were at a mall. This is all kind of fuzzy because this happened about a little over 30 years ago. But we're in a mall, and then we're in a food court. And we were, we were sitting down at a table, and there was a table right, right where the well, maybe the, the front row chairs here, okay? And that's how far it was. And these guys were talking, there were two guys talking, they were a little bit loud. And I was listening to them, it was kind of a philosophical religious conversation. I don't even remember now what it was all about. But I remember hearing that, and I said to them at one point, I said, this is kind of interesting conversation. And we talked for maybe just five minutes, and, they, and then they said, we got to go, but, uh, and they were medical doctors, and they said, uh, we got to go back to the clinic but I tell you what, you're going to be around here for a while? And I said, yeah, in, in Bakersfield? I said, yeah. And they said, well, why don't you come over to the clinic sometime and you can talk further about us, uh, with us about what you're saying. I'm like, okay. You know? So a few days later, I drove my car, had to find, you know, you, can't, you didn't have cell phones. I had to use an atlas. Right? So you looked at the atlas and you go and they figured out where the, the address was. And I stopped there and I came in there and, and I was fully expecting to go into the clinic and then there was, I would go to maybe the guy's separate office, and it would be just me and those two guys, or maybe just myself and one other guy, right? They said, well, come follow me, and so, or follow us. So, so they took me to a separate room. It was like a luncheon room, and I went through the door, and there were like 20 people there, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. You feel like you're going into a lion's den a little bit, right? So you get in there, and they were all smiling. They were very nice, and they put a plate of Mexican food before me that they had gotten, and so we started eating. And at one point, they said, they said, well, why don't you stand up, and why don't you tell us what you believe, you know? And I said, well, okay. And honestly, I can't remember everything I said, but I do remember talking to them about Jesus and the very text that we're citing here. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so they're listening to this, and I started talking about some things regarding the Christian faith, but when I talked about Jesus as the only way, you could just tell they're getting their backs up a little bit. You, just, you could feel the tension in the room kind of rising. It's very interesting what the mention of the name Jesus does. 
And at one point, there was a young African-American man. I, I don't think he was a doctor, but he, was, he was, uh, just worked in that clinic. And he said this, and I want to draw to a close of this illustration, but he said, you know, I just think that it's like, it's like you have a big mountain, and you've got many paths leading up to the mountain, and you've probably heard this illustration before, and they all lead to the top. They all lead to the same place. Now, sometimes you will talk with people who will use what we call analogies or illustrations. They begin with a principle, and then they get an illustration that fits with the principle. But sometimes the principle is wrong. And so the, the analogy or the illustration begins to break down. And so I said to them, in so many words, I said, I understand your illustration, but I don't agree with the illustration, nor I believe, uh, agree with the principle behind the illustration. So what the Bible really teaches us is, yeah, let's say there's a mountain and there are many paths leading up toward the top of the mountain, but after a while they begin to diverge and actually there's only one path that actually gets to the top, and that's Jesus. It's like Ledgeview, you know, if, if you're new, <laughs> when you're new to this place, you go up Ledgeview, there's all kinds of trails. You all think that they lead to the same place. They don't. They don't. So, but there, there is one path that leads to a very beautiful spot where you get to see the Sumas Valley. And it's that, it's that one. That's a good analogy. That's following Jesus. I am that path. There are not many paths. I am that path. Okay, now, one final thing. Why do we confess that as Christians? Why does the, why does the Christian faith say there's only one path that leads to the top of the mountain where Jesus is? Why? What are you going to say when someone says that? You say Jesus is the only way. Well, then what makes him qualified to be the only way? This is what is, is wonderful about catechetical training. Never, never view the catechism as just a dry document where you just trot doctrines of the faith. This is a great tool for evangelism. So, um, I want to draw your attention. If you put up, there you go. Um, well, we're at 18. If you go back to 15, we're going to start with 15. All right. Now, what kind of mediator or deliverer must we seek? In other words, what kind of person must we seek that's going to bring us to Jesus uh, or bring us to the Father? Well, here, Jesus' name not a, is not even mentioned. One who is true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who at the same time true God. Now, Jesus, according to Orthodox theology, and uh, there's a creed called the Creed of Chalcedon that basically says that Jesus is one person, has two natures, human and divine. That's just basic Christian theology. So, why do we say, if Jesus is going to get us to the Father, why do we need a person who is both human and divine? Why not just divine and not human, or just human and not divine? It's got to be both. Why? Catechism lays it out wonderfully. Okay, why must he be, first of all, man? But notice what it says. Why must he be true and righteous man? This doesn't say, why does Jesus need to be, or this deliverer, why does he need to be a man? No, why does he need to be a true and righteous man? So first of all, why does Jesus need to be a true man? Now you go, what does that mean? That means, why does he have to be a genuine human being? He can't just appear to be a human being. He has to be a genuine human being. There was a, there was a, uh, a heresy in the early church called docetism, and the docetists said Jesus merely appeared to be human, and the church wrote that off and said, that's heretical, we can't believe that. He has to be a true, genuine human being. Why? And the answer the catechism gives, rightly so on the basis of Hebrews 2, is the justice of God requires that the human nature which sin should pay for sin. 
That's why Jesus needed to be like you and me. We're sinners, so he had to become like us as a human being. We're human beings, he had to be a human being. Not just appear that way, not be an angel, but to be a human being, a genuine one. Okay. Oh, but he also has to be a righteous man or human being because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. In other words, Jesus not only needed to be a genuine human being, but he had to be a sinless human being. Because one sinner cannot pay the price for another sinner. God won't accept it. He requires a perfect sacrifice to take away sin and usher us into his presence. You need to be true. This is why um, I believe it's uh, Hebrews, forget the chapter, I think it's Hebrews 7, where it says, For it's fitting that we have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. So Jesus needed to be a true and righteous human. Now, that's the kind of human he was, but he also needs to be God. And you go, why did Jesus need to be God? And the answer to that is, the catechism puts it well, he has to be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath upon, upon sin. So kids, sometimes it's not always talked about today, but... God takes sin so seriously that it's his wrath, it's his intense anger that goes out against that sin. And if we, if we had to bear the full weight of the wrath or the anger of God upon ourselves merely as humans, as creatures, we'd be obliterated, we'd be destroyed. For those of you who like theology, the word is propitiation. Jesus is a propitiatory sacrifice bore the weight of God's wrath, especially on the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, oh, why have you forsaken me? And finally, Jesus needed to be God in order to be the one who alone can obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life itself. Who is that mediator? Who's at the same time true God, true man? Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He is everything that we need. Everything. You and I, we can't make it to God on our own. Somebody else can't do it for us. We need, we need Jesus. Singularly, beautifully qualified. So I end with this. Again, you're going to get pushback with that. People are going to say, oh, that's so narrow, and that's so exclusive, so arrogant. But here's a good response to that, and that is this. It's true. The way to Jesus, the way to God is exclusive. It's only through Jesus. But the Christian faith is also highly inclusive, inviting in the sense that God says, yes, Jesus is the only way to me. However, I invite all who hear this message to embrace it and repentance and faith, to embrace Jesus himself. For as the Bible says, God is not partial. He doesn't play favorites, in other words. God is not partial, but he grants his riches to all who call upon him. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? The way is narrow, but the invitation is broad. And God invites all of us
whether for the first time in your life or for the hundredth time, to embrace this Jesus and draw near to God through him. Okay? Let's pray, and then we're going to have a couple of questions. Heavenly Father, thank you for this. This is the gospel. This is actually the very, very good news. For, Lord, we know that we ourselves and others are too weak and too unqualified to bring us into your presence. We need you, Lord Jesus. Help us to see the importance of who you are and you as the sole source of life, joy, and pleasure, we pray. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.